Welcome back everybody to the Luke Beasley Show. I hope you're doing wonderful on this Thursday. We have a jam-packed show ahead of us, so let's dive in. President of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, made a historic visit to the United States, the White House, and then the Capitol. And we have so much to look at from this, so let's waste no time and just start going through a number of different clips from this visit. First, meeting with Biden in the Oval Office and thanking uh, Joe Biden, the American people, for their support. Great honor for me to be here. Your journalists, I thank you so much for invitation. I really wanted to come further. Mr. President knows about it, but I couldn't do it because the situation was so difficult. And now, if I'm calm, I came, I mean that we control the situation and because of support. And first of all, because of your support. And I really, I understand that we have very important topics and we'll discuss them, everything, so many challenges in Ukraine, in Europe, in the world, and from energy to situation on battlefield, but, but I, first of all, I really, all my appreciations from my heart, from the heart of Ukrainians, all Ukrainians, from our nation, strong nations, all the appreciations to you, first of all, Mr. President, for your big support and leadership, of course, Europe, many countries. We'll stop it there, but voicing that appreciation for the significant amount of support the United States has sent Ukraine's way. And as he went on to describe, Joe Biden largely has been the leader within kind of the uh, alliance between all these different countries that is helping Ukraine. The United States has head that up in a significant way. Next moment from the press conference that followed. Help us to defend. Our and this is, of course, now uh, a translator for Zelensky. Our values, values and independence. And regardless of changes in the Congress, I believe that there will be bipartisan and bicameral support. And I know that everybody works for this. And of course, during all of uh, my meetings today, uh, we discussed issues of uh, standoff against the uh, terror of Russia, their destruction of our energy infrastructure. We need to survive this winter. We need to protect our people, and we need to be very specific in this area. This is a key. And that is important because it highlights one of the primary goals of this visit, both being just to show the strength and presence of Ukraine and the bond between the United States and Ukraine in this situation, but then also to uh, rally support among lawmakers for continued uh, efforts to assist Ukraine. Here's Biden pledging the United States continued support to Ukraine. What I want you to know, President Zelensky, I want you to know that all the people of Ukraine to know as well, the American people have been with you every step of the way, and we will stay with you. We will stay with you for as long as it takes. What you're doing, what you've achieved, it matters not just to Ukraine, but to the entire world. And together, I have no doubt we'll keep the flame of liberty burning bright and the light will remain and prevail over the darkness. There we go. And then uh, interesting moment when Biden gets asked pretty much, why is it that you'll sort of escalate the type of military support you're giving, but not cross 
a certain line, why not just give everything in the form of military support that you can? And Biden had a good answer, but here's starting with kind of a funny moment that occurred right after the journalist asked the question. Capabilities including long-range missiles uh, attackums. Maybe I sound naive, but can we make long story short and give Ukraine all capabilities it needs and uh, liberate all territories rather sooner than later? Thank you. Well, th his answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so, of course, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is on the side of, yeah, give us everything possible. But as Biden outlines a little bit later in this clip, it's a little bit more complicated than that from the perspective of the United States and other Western nations. We've announced today another 200,000 rounds of additional ammunition. And you say, why don't we just give Ukraine everything there is to give? Well, for two reasons. One, there's an entire alliance that is critical to stay with Ukraine. And the idea that we would give Ukraine material that is fundamentally different than is already going there would have a prospect of breaking up NATO and breaking up the European Union and the rest of the world. We're going to give Ukraine what it needs to be able to defend itself, to be able to succeed and succeed in the battlefield. And uh, the other piece of this is, you may recall, one of the reasons why I have spent, well, I won't tell you the calculation, but I've spent several hundred hours face-to-face -face with our European allies and the heads of state of those countries and making the case as to why it was overwhelming in their interest that they continue to support Ukraine. They understand it fully, but they're not looking to go to war with Russia. They're not looking for a third world war. And I think they can all be avoided by making sure that Ukraine is able to We'll stop it there. But great uh, response from Biden. We're going to give Ukraine what we can give them without setting off a larger set of ramifications that the broader uh, community of countries that standing behind Ukraine isn't willing to withstand or be a part of. Now we get into the speech that uh, President Zelensky gave in front of Congress. First moment here. This chamber has spread across the country, dear journalists. It's a great honor for me to be at the U.S. Congress and speak to you and all Americans. Against, against all odds and doom and gloom scenarios, Ukraine didn't fall. Ukraine is alive and kicking. And indeed they are, him highlighting the pretty shocking and impressive response we've seen in some part because of the support of the United States and other countries um, where Ukraine has been able to fend off Russia so much more aggressively and successfully than I think anyone or most people expected. And it's been really, within the context of a horrible situation, good to watch that that has been the outcome rather than um, what I think more people would have told you was going to happen beforehand. Next moment from this speech. Let this flag stay with you, ladies and gentlemen. This flag is a symbol of our victory. 
in this war. So he's presenting a Ukrainian flag to Congress. We stand, we fight, and we will win because we are united. Ukraine, America, and the entire free world. There it is, and he was, of course, also presented with an American flag to take with him. And then, uh, last moment here from the speech, I want you to take a look at. I would like to thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for both financial packages you have already provided us with and the ones you may be willing to decide on. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. And I love that. Your money's not charity. And it's one of the things I've tried to advocate um, on behalf of within the context of this discussion around how much money should we be sending, how much support. And I'm way more on the side of more um, and continued than some other people who disagree. And one of the reasons that I cite is it's not just about what I think is an absolutely justified intention of helping a country that was invaded un, uh, in an unjustified manner defend themselves, but also what it means for the kind of global ramifications going forward if Russia is uh, not successful in this effort. Last little thing that was floating around in regard to this, um, the recount put together a good comparison of when Zelensky met with Trump versus when Zelensky met with Biden. I really hope that you and President Putin get together and can solve your problem. That would be a tremendous achievement. It's an honor to be by your side in the United Defense against what is a brutal, brutal war being waged by Putin. So, of course, two different realities completely as far as what was happening in the world. Um, but just the face on Zelensky's or the look on Zelensky's face in the two different clips is quite funny, but really, again, historic moment. And I think it was impactful to watch. He was advocating on behalf of the strength of Ukraine, but then also advocating on behalf of uh, trying to get Congress to be on the side of continued support. And I think from his perspective, it went really well. And Zelensky did a great job. I think Biden did a great job. And again, it was pretty fascinating to watch. One of the aspects of the meeting between Zelensky, President Zelensky of Ukraine and Joe Biden, as well as Zelensky's address to Congress and all the different things that happened yesterday was that Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates decided they were gonna take this as an opportunity to snub Zelensky and show that they didn't really support I guess his efforts to lead his country in defending themselves as much as the other members of Congress. So I have two clips for you of Lauren Bower and Matt Gates. One of them, they're on their phone. The other, they're not standing when everyone does a standing ovation. And you're not required to stand up whenever people do a standing ovation, of course, but if you choose not to while everyone else does, it means you're making a decision to get attention. You wanna get attention to make a point. 
and the point they're trying to make is not one I agree with. Before we watch these clips, quickly this being reported um, here from Business Insider, Representatives Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates stayed seated and did not applause as other lawmakers gave a standing ovation for Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky when he addressed Congress. Zelensky spoke to a joint session of Congress on Wednesday. It marked his first visit outside Ukraine since Russia's invasion began in February. While Boebert and Gates attended, neither MAGA Republicans seemed impressed. And then we will look at those moments ourselves. Um, first one, as you'll see here an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. And I'll stop it there so you can see Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert just kind of staying seated as if they're not supportive or impressed with what he's saying. Again, I say, it's not that I'm just, oh my gosh, you're not doing what everyone else is doing and that on its face is horrible. No, because you chose to do that so that you would get a camera pointed at you, so that you would have some sort of platform to be making a point. And the point that you're making is, I don't stand behind Ukraine, who is justifiably defending themselves against an invasion um, and a brutal one. So very aggravating second moment here just on their phones doing their thing i believe i believe there should be no taboos between our i mean we've seen so many within the right-wing movement just kind of have the most strange reaction to the russian invasion of ukraine and a pretty vile one and we'll look at later in the show, Tucker Carlson's reaction, which is also just deeply unsettling and inaccurate. And so here, choosing to use this opportunity, a historic address to Congress from the president of Ukraine, his first time out of Ukraine since Russia's invasion, and your reaction, even if you have some particular differences on, hey, this dollar amount seems too much, this type of weapon support seems too much, that's a, that's a conversation that you can have, but just to simply say, I'm going to try to disrespect this whole process, disrespect this uh, leader for the point of getting attention, to me is so petulant and so childish. And again, is trying to get attention for a stance that I just don't disagree with. I don't think that as many of these right wingers are trying to get people to believe you, uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is some horrible killer who wants to do this terrible destruction. And that's why he's defending himself and helping lead his country to defend themselves from Russia's invasion. Russia didn't have to invade. So why are we now blaming the country that got invaded for any of this uh, situation? It is very bizarre and very, again, inaccurate and enraging as exemplified there by Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates, Tucker Carlson responded to Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to the United States, to the White House, and then he addressed the joint session of Congress. And what I'm about to show you is so unhinged and just not logical. Set aside how this kind of in my core will make me angry, just logically what he's saying in this clip I'm about to show you, and then we have a second one right after it, is so deeply illogical and backwards. 
Take a look at the wise analysis from Tucker Carlson, the most watched cable news host, to a historic visit of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to the United States to rally support for his defense of his country. As far as we know, no one's ever addressed the United States Congress in a sweatshirt before, but they love him much more than they love you. Welcome to Tucker Carlson's site. Remember when Sam Bankman-Fried showed up in Washington wearing a t-shirt and spouting nonsense and all the self-described geniuses declared him a hero? The media, the Congress, the White House, they all love this weird little guy called Sam Bankman-Fried. Do you remember that? Somehow we were reminded of it today when the president of Ukraine arrived at the White House dressed like the manager of a strip club and started to demand money. Amazingly, no one threw... He's at war. I don't think putting on a nice suit is at the top of his priority list. Threw him out. Instead, they did whatever he wanted. American taxpayers declare Joe Biden will continue to give Zelensky whatever he demands for, quote, as long as it takes. So the funny thing even there is I think giving the phrase whatever it takes doesn't literally mean whatever. It just means we're here and we're going to try to help you with um, what you need. But also, as we looked at in a previous segment, Joe Biden didn't even say, say we'll give you anything and everything and had to clarify that certain types of support would be seen as too escalatory. And so the Biden administration isn't going to go there, but is going to go in other areas that he feels like will fulfill the needs that Ukraine has without sparking a larger set of ramifications that he doesn't want to. And so even that's just false. And then second moment I'll show you from Tucker Carlson responding to this significant event. The point of today's visit to Washington was not to make the world more stable or make wise decisions, much less to help America. That's always at the bottom of the list. The point was to fawn over the Ukrainian strip club manager and hand him billions more dollars from our own crumbling economy. It is hard, in fact, it may be impossible to imagine a more humiliating scenario for the greatest country on earth. And we would love to blame Joe Biden for it, but we can't really, not entirely at least. This was bipartisan masochism. We're gonna play a little bit more of this clip where he just gets so, so weird. But first, to what he said there. Number one, why he's obsessing over the outfit of President Zelensky makes absolutely no sense. Again, he's at war, you're gonna have different types of clothing on when that's what you're dealing with day to day. But then, and the strip club owner thing is just, if you wanna make a substantive point about why you're aggravated about this, then obsessing over the appearance is not gonna get you there because that's just completely without substance. Second point, he says it's humiliating to the most powerful or the greatest country on the planet to be doing what we're doing in regard to Ukraine and with this event. No, it's the exact opposite. What is a better use of the power you have as the most powerful country in the world than defending a weaker, a less powerful, and a defensive, a country that is defending themselves, from an unjustified attack. What's a better use of your power as the most powerful country in the world than that? He's completely wrong. Watch it get even weirder. The Uniparty is alive and well despite the best efforts of voters, including last month. And if you doubt that it's alive and well, here's a picture of Zelensky that he had taken with a group of elderly Republican senators in Kiev back in May. They stand grinning next to him in their orthopedic shoes, 70-year-old Susan Collins, John Barrasso, John Cornyn, led by their 80-year-old ringleader, Mitch McConnell. 44-year-old Zelensky poses between them in a skin-tight polo shirt, flexing like a weightlifter and trying to look ferocious. They seem awestruck. Not since a young Fidel Castro showed up in New York wearing battle fatigues 
has this country's aging leadership class tittered more loudly in delight. They love a man in uniform. What a hunk. So strong and decisive. Look at the expression on Mitch McConnell's face. You can almost hear the giggles of pleasure. No rational person assessing the issues ever. So again, I say, what is this obsession with Zelensky's appearance? He brings up the clothing again, and then he's talking about how tight Zelensky's shirt is and the giggles of Mitch McConnell in being next to him and how he's posing like a bodybuilder or something, he said, a weightlifter. That is so irrelevant to the conversation that needs to be had about this. And it shows you, I've had discussions with people who have a difference in opinion than me when it comes to Ukraine. It's not as anywhere as close as, as far as Tucker Carlson, of course, because that would just not be a good conversation. But um, it, it, some people feel like, oh, I, feel, I don't think we can afford to give as much money as we're giving. And then we'll go back and forth. And it's a perfectly good faith conversation. Tucker Carlson with his, this is a jihad on the Christian nation of Russia, and this is an attack on Christianity, as the banner read later on in his segment, and all of this, or yeah, gosh, he's completely unhinged. That shows you that his stance can't be argued with good substance, evidence, and facts in a calm and logical way, because he has to go to the tightness of the polo on Zelensky's body. <laughs> that reveals to you how illogical and how without substance Tucker Carlson's arguments in regard to this truly are. Let me know what you think, Luke P. Beasley on Twitter. We have seen better GDP numbers, GDP growth for the quarter three uh, than expected, and it's been updated now. It was previously estimated to go at 2.9% GDP growth for quarter three. It's been bumped up to 3.2, which is more than expected and means our economy is back on the growth in a good way. Guys, this is third quarter GDP. It, the first and second, the second reading was 2.9%. They've revised it up to 3.2%. That is a strong performance, an economy doing well with consumer spending and export growth. That's what the government says. These are those two quarters this summer. Remember earlier this year when we had the shrinking U.S. economy, people were saying it was a recession. It was very shallow. You still had a very strong job market. And a lot of economists said, no, this doesn't feel too recessiony. We think that there's pent up demand. Look, this mm -hmm. is a bounce back, a very big bounce back. Um, these are these quarters coming out of uh, COVID when the economy just exploded here. So this is a strong performance for U.S. economy. Great news. It is funny. These types of things are reflecting and analyzing stuff that's already happened, of course. And so then that gives us insight into where we're headed and what the economy looks like now. And uh, it looks like we're on a much better trajectory than was previously the case. And we did hear a lot of speculation that we're about to be plummeted into a terrible, horrible, massive recession, and it's all Joe Biden's fault. And when people make those predictions, sometimes even with some evidence, I mean, we did have two back-to-back uh, -back quarters of a decrease in GDP. And the funny thing about covering politics is the same people will never come out later and say, you know what? I was wrong if I was blaming Biden for the recession that was uh, going to be the worst thing ever before, then I'm going to now tell you that clearly Biden's doing something right now. When I cover these types of stories, I try to be honest with you and say the president of the United States doesn't have complete authority over the economy. And there's so many variables that contribute to this. And so when it's great, 
it's not to be credited towards the president unless you can say a particular policy he pushed for had a significant impact. And when it's horrible, you should um, you know, confront in the same manner. Most people don't do that because they're just pushing political agendas, but uh, I think they should. Good news though, the GDP is back on the upswing for Americans. Carrie Lake is just not stopping, and we're gonna speculate about why that might be in a second here. But first, I have clips for you that are just sad, deeply sad and embarrassing because she's now having to surround herself with people who pretend, wait, that she's going to become governor still. The election has been certified. The analogy I used previously was uh, because she had used it playing in the Super Bowl and she was using some Super Bowl analogy. But the real analogy is that the Super Bowl occurred, you lost, everyone else left the stadium, and you're still just sitting out there screaming about how it was unfair and how you're still going to win somehow. It's not possible. I don't know what's going on in her brain. Not much. But this is what's going down in her world with the people she surrounds herself with, namely Steve Bannon asking her, how, as governor, are you going to get the southern border under control? As, as <laughs> governor. What's going to happen on December 21st with the lifting of Title 42? What is Carrie Lake going to do in the first week of January as governor of this state? Well, we're still going to do what we were planning on doing all along. We are going to declare an invasion, finish President Trump's wall. We're going to have to move some of those uh, barriers out of the way to do that. Hold, hold, you're going to but, move some of Ducey's barriers? Well, I'll tell you this, Steve. I'm going to be honest. Any barrier is better than no barrier, but we're going to put a real wall up. A real wall. And we have the right to do that as a state. Article 1, Section 10 in the U.S. Constitution. And so we're going to take back control of our own border. But at the same time, we will have a special session called, and we are going to get to the bottom of these elections. As so... We're going to dive into some things and then I have more clips that are even more cringy for in a second here for you of her. But it's just brutal to think about there's a sect of our country that genuinely believes Carrie Lake is becoming governor. <laughs> That's unbelievable. And then they're listening and thinking, yeah, oh, good policy proposal. And then she cites the Constitution. I think you need to read the Constitution a little more. Uh, you know, thoroughly because it would indicate to you that you're not becoming governor because you lost the election. And then she says, we're going to declare an invasion at the southern border as she's been pushing for. And I've talked about how that language is so dehumanizing, so dangerous. People we're talking about here are looking for a better life. They're not invading our country. It is so dehumanizing. But you know what? Declare whatever you want because you're going to be just a citizen and that won't mean anything it is so wild and then here's her saying uh not her steve bannon saying to the crowd hey isn't this governor carrie lake did i hear governor lake is this governor carrie lake no steve it's not it's not governor carrie lake <laughs> this is amazing thank you everyone Oh, and then another, you know, talking about a past analogy we used, it's as if you went to medical school, you failed out, and then you get all your friends to call you doctor still. <laughs> That's what's going on right now in Carrie Lake's world. The whole crowd's cheering, yeah, it's Governor Lake. 
but it's not though. You know how, and I have one more clip for you, but you know how sad and distraught and disgusted I would be, or I would have been, if Hillary Clinton was walking around after the 2016 election and going to events and having people call her President Clinton. I would be so watching that. And that's what's happening right now with Carrie. You can't even imagine that with Hillary Clinton because she has some level of dignity to uphold, I guess. Take a look at this last moment with Charlie Kirk still pretending like a new election could happen. What is the remedy we're asking for? I think that we need a new election. I think I that there needs to be a new election. Yep. But we can't have the same clowns running this election. We can't put it back into the hands of people who have bungled the election time and time again. And yes, what is the remedy? We're so she won and she's already governor and even though, even if she had one, she wouldn't be governor by now. So calling her governor still wouldn't make sense, but she's gonna become governor because she won, but also we need a new election because she lost. The logic doesn't make much sense to me. But again, I say the scary part about this, as silly as it is, and to me, how sad it feels almost for her, but then those emotions get pushed out of my brain because the danger of all of this is so much more profound and significant than even how sad or how bonkers it is. And that must be remembered. And that's why we keep talking about this because so many people in our country are bought into this type of thinking and it must be confronted and addressed. And that's what we do here. It's so wild. Michelle Obama uh, was talking kind of a broader conversation, but she, she addressed a little nugget, a little story that made me want to talk about kind of another critique of the left from within the left, if that makes sense. So a lot of the right-wing attacks of liberals just make absolutely no sense, and we spend so much time on the show breaking down why that is. But Michelle Obama nicely, in the story I'm about to show you here that she tells, uh, highlights the way that the left, in my mind, takes good intentions too far and ends up actually eating itself alive and, and not being as effective as it could be. So I'll show you the full context of this, um, but then later on in this clip, she gets to the part that I'm talking about. Because I write about how this generation, you know, with this constant negative news and the worry about everything, they're always on their phones, they're getting too much information. The young people I run into are worried. Yeah. They are worried about- And this is on Conan O'Brien's podcast it looks like the world all of them they're worried about climate change they're worrying about crime in their neighborhoods and they're young thinking about ways to fix everything right you know and they wear themselves out what's well, paralyzing it's paralyzing totally paralyzing when the thing they need to do is focus what focus on your knitting yeah all you can do at 12 15 is go to school <laughs> yeah go to class finish your homework you know, start there because that's the, the stitch. Those are the stitches you put together. And if you don't put each of those stitches together, you will never be help to uh, of help to anyone Yeah. because you will flame out. You will never graduate. You won't learn how to write. You won't know. So you're trying to take on these big problems that are too big for the power that you have. But you do have power to control the thing you can. That's why I say when I got into the White House, when people asked me what I what was going to be my agenda, I said, well, my first focus is going to be mom in chief, mm -hmm. you know, because I have to make sure that the kids I'm in charge of are good, 
before I can help anybody else's kids. And I got criticized by feminists about that, like mom and chief. And I was like, well, of course I'm going to do everything else. That was a given. I know how to work. I know how to be a professional. I knew, you know, but I thought it was an important thing to say, I have to control what I can. I brought these two kids in the world. I have to be a good mother to them before I can help anybody. Yeah. You know. Okay. We'll stop it there. So the part that's fascinating to me is that she got criticized by feminists for that label mom and chief or putting her children uh, first. And yes, it was Conan O'Brien um, needs a friend episode of that podcast. So uh, we'll address that in just a second here. But the build up to it was also interesting that she feels the younger generation's children are worrying too much about the problems of our world too early. And it is interesting because I love to see the social awareness that is beyond many people's years within younger generations. It's kind of how I was younger than most already diving into politics and all of that. And it was really interesting and really important and all that. But then you do see the negative side of that being a level of anxiety that you really don't need to be putting on children where they have to worry about all these global and um, country related issues that right now they can't really affect. And so it's getting that balance of being aware early on, which I think is good, but then not being too bought into those things where you're stressed all the time as a child when you should be having fun and going to school and developing and all of that. But then she says, at least from her uh, account, she got backlash from feminists, meaning people on the left, liberals, um, who felt her proclaiming that her top priority was going to be her kids and saying mom and chief and taking issue with that. And the perspective that they're taking issue with that from is no you need to be kind of an icon for a woman getting out there and achieving things in the career aspect of your role um and make your mark that way so mom and chief is a little traditional or something like that and that's what i don't like i don't like that criticism of individuals and i've talked about the push from liberals to be more inclusive myself included inclusive and aware that not everyone falls into the traditional box and the old ideas from a more traditional time if you want to use that word um don't apply to everyone and hinder people from living a free life that is of their choosing so with the feminist movement pushing for a world where women are absolutely celebrated for their successes and careers and are only confined to being in the home and all that. And that's incredible. And that is such a great fight that continues to this day. But we can't then be exclusionary of people who choose by their own choosing. This doesn't apply to Michelle Obama because she had not a traditional life at all, but this reminds me of it, who choose a more traditional life. So if you do choose to be a woman who raises children and end up being in the home a lot and doing those type of traditional type roles, that if it was of your choosing and you weren't uh, scolded into it also can be celebrated. We can celebrate people going out there and getting it with their career and if they choose to raise a family because all of that's necessary to our wonderful, beautiful world that we want to create. And that's something that I've been kind of thinking about. How can the progressive movement both encourage uh, all of these different pushes, but for now we'll talk about it with the context of, uh, within the context of the feminist movement, um, 
women to be celebrated and and uh, pushed to achieve incredible things and not fit into a traditional box if they don't want to, while also being loving and inclusive and celebratory of people who make that choice and want to raise a family, want to do their thing, and want to put their kids as a top priority with Michelle Obama's case. And so one of the things that I think the right wing doesn't do, they're getting more into it now, which is fun to see, but the left has always done is tear each other apart at any point in time, all the time, we're always going after each other. And we have a hard time uniting with one another because something tiny can set off a certain part of the left movement to go after someone. So no one should criticize Michelle Obama if she chooses, or in the case, you know, back then she chose to say, mom and chief, that's my number one role. And then I'm also gonna go and make huge impact on the country broadly in a more career type role that should not garner a backlash from anyone within her movement. And that's why I think we have a hard time as the left launching forward because we're too busy screaming at each other for relatively small things. Whereas at least historically, the right in recent times has been able to unite quicker because they want to beat the Democrats and that's their top priority or they want to make the libs cry or whatever it might be. And I think the left getting a little bit more unified and a little more tolerant of people who are just a little bit different than your perfect ideal um, from whatever set of ideology or whatever issue you're fighting for would be a really good thing. Interesting situation occurring where Sean Hannity is completely humiliating himself within the context of a testimony he gave revealing he didn't believe the election lies, but yet he propped up people and put people on his platform who were perpetuating those lies 2020 and beyond. As Mediate outlines here, Sean Hannity testified under oath in a deposition that he did not believe former President Donald Trump's claims about voting machine fraud in the 2020 election, according to a piece published by the New York Times on Wednesday. So this is coming from the New York Times, but Mediate had a little bit more of a concise breakdown. The Fox News host responded to a question about allegations made by Sidney Powell. If y'all remember, Sidney Powell was that incredibly bonkers uh, lawyer. A former federal prosecutor who represented Trump in election-related lawsuits, Trump falsely claimed the election was rigged against him. Powell alleged that states that used voting machines made by Dominion voting systems were rife with fraud. And she was the one talking about how these machines were created by Hugo Chavez, and then now they're being used to steal elections in the United States. She re reiterated the claim on Hannity's Fox News program on November 30th, 2020, a couple weeks after the election was called for Joe Biden. Powell stated there had been corruption all across the country in countless districts. And then it continues to go on. And then down here uh, is part of this testimony that's so fascinating, it gets outlined. At the center of this imagined plot were machines from Dominion Voting Systems, which Ms. Powell claimed ran an algorithm that switched votes from Mr. Trump to votes for Joseph R. Biden Jr. Dominion uh, machines, she insisted, were being used to trash large batches of votes. Mr. Handy interrupted her with a gentle question that had been circulating among election deniers despite a lack of supporting proof. Why were Democrats silencing whistleblowers who could prove this fraud? Did Mr. Handy believe any of this? Quote, I did not believe it for one second. That was the answer Mr. Hannity gave under oath in a deposition in Dominion's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News. I did not believe it for one second. If you were bringing people 
onto your platform to tell these lies and then you know internally you don't believe in any of it even if you're not the one screaming about the lies but instead just platforming people who are and not pushing back significantly is deeply immoral and dangerous and it's how a lot of these lies get spread because maybe some of the people within the leadership part of these movements believe the lies but for the most part it's a bunch of people who don't believe the lies but have some incentive to tell them and so with sean hannity his audience wanted to hear this type of stuff so he did allow them to hear it and did not speak out against it in any significant way and allowed millions of people to be lied to and have their minds manipulated into believing some wild stuff about our election processes that absolutely were not true and Sidney powell being just the most crazy example of those lies getting spread and so i hope in some way sean hannity is held accountable for this as well as all these other individuals who helped to convince so much of america of these lies while many of the people doing that didn't even believe them themselves which is the most dangerous type of person and dangerous type of rhetoric in my mind mike lindell has now decided to target ron DeSantis with his wacky claims of election fraud and this needs to be looked at and this needs to be looked at now we'll talk about why that is but here's this going down where he announces that him and his advanced team of cyber experts and all this will be taking a look at a county in florida because something fishy might be going on again there's an interesting explanation for why he's focusing on a republican now when most of his time has been spent lying about the elections that democrats win take a look but you know a lot of my team uh at least the cyber team and the uh the it people you, you know what county in the country i had him i'm having him focus on what uh, for the next couple weeks what what which one uh, it is, um, um, just to hold on a second, go, go, talk, talk there. I'm going to, I'm going to see if I'm getting advice from my, my attorney here, not to see. <laughs> What'd you find out after we broke away? We'll continue, but such a strange occurrence there. He's about to say something. And then I guess in his earpiece or someone off camera is saying, no, don't say that his lawyer, he says hmm. for a minute. Okay. Well, here's what we got everybody. Just like I told you before. We have, uh, you know, with Smartmatic, we have all those cast vote records for um, the results have come in for um, L.A. County. So we have all everything on Smartmatic from the 2020 election. What we're doing now is I am going after Dade County in the 2022 election. And everyone says, now, why would you go after Dade County? Does that, would you know why, Brandon? Well, uh, no, I mean, that's Florida. You would think, oh, that's a conservative state, Dade County. Oh, no. You know what happened in Dade County in uh, in the 2022 election? N is that the one where, where no, uh, that's not the one where there's so many Hispanics flipped and voted for Republican, is it? Well, this is where Ron DeSantis won Dade County. This a Republican won Dade County. Okay. Well, for me, I look at deviations, everybody. That's a deviation. Because that was historical. I don't, I, he, normally I, Republicans don't, I don't win that believe, count. I don't believe it. So I want to, so yeah, I'm just going to show everybody, just like we always say about Democrats where they stole their elections, just like they did. Uh, of course they didn't. Uh, the one, that, that nice lady in Georgia that got zero votes in her own precinct. Right. I want to find out in Dade County what happened there because it's, 
it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a deviation from norm. Okay. So deviations from norms in politics happen all the time. Places that didn't historically vote for Republicans sometimes do. Vice versa occurs as well. And he is deciding for two reasons. He's going to go after a county that DeSantis won, a Republican. The first is the most important in my mind, and he's still, Mike Lindell, a Trump loyalist. And so he doesn't like that DeSantis is getting all this attention and love and support within the MAGA base. And one of the ways you could take that away from him is claim he's also part of the crazy deep state cabal that's stealing elections from everyone and DeSantis stole his election. And so he can try to fight for Trump through his wacky, weird investigations that never find any proof of anything, but he thinks that they do. The other reason is he's been getting accused rightfully of number one being wrong, <clears throat> but also being biased with what he focuses on because he claims, no, 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 I don't care Republican, Democrat, I don't care Trump, Biden, I just care about elections being stolen and that's what I'm focusing on. It just so happens that yes, his narrative he wants to run with is the Democratic Party stealing everything, the Republican Party is the victim. So this could be an effort for him to publicly show, no, see, I investigate all different types of people and it's not just Democrats who steal elections. But I think most importantly, he does want to make DeSantis less of a beloved figure within the MAGA base and the more, you know, broad Republican group, whoever among that actually tunes into Mike Lindell. And this is his way of doing that because the only tool that he has is claiming election fraud. That's the only thing he does day to day as the MyPillow guy. He's just screaming about um, fraud here and fraud there. So now he's going to set his sights on Ron DeSantis and continue to make baseless claims. Hakeem Jeffries, who of course will be taking over for Nancy Pelosi as the leader of the Democrats in the House, absolutely dismantled the current Republican Party and the situation they're in in a clip that we're going to get to. And setting aside any differences you may have with Hakeem Jeffries, this is how it's done and how the Democratic Party should address and confront the Republican Party more often. It's the nice balance of serious points that you're making, but also kind of in a playful, jabby uh, way that's entertaining. Take a look. And look at what is happening right now. Look at what's happening right now. House Republicans are attacking Senate Republicans. Senate Republicans are calling House Republicans silly and immature. The leadership situation is in chaos. Marjorie Taylor Greene is fighting with Lauren Boebert. And George Santos appears to be starring in the sequel to Catch Me If You Can. And it's not even January 3rd. The circus has already come to town. Chaos, crisis, confusion, and craziness versus Democrats who deliver for the American people. Mm. Great. One of the things we talk about so often on this show is that the Republican Party, with their gargantuous flaws, are so much better at branding and messaging 
usually than the Democratic Party. And the proof of that is that somehow they still win elections when their policy platform is we're going to scream about and demonize people and make you afraid of everything while also cutting taxes for just the wealthy and giving more powerful to those uh, more power to those who already have plenty of power. That's not a winning message, but somehow they make it one by branding and messaging better and fear-mongering really effectively and all these things. And the Democratic Party, I think, assumes because the policies are actually more, not they're not where they should be, but they're more in the interest of the American people than the Republican Party. And that difference should be so clear that we should just be respectful and honest and the American people will get that our policies are better. No, you have to have the better policies and win on messaging and win on the political attack stage and all of these different areas and get the jabs in when you can get the viral clip soundbite going around Twitter when you can. And that's how you actually win more often and more effectively. And so Hakeem Jeffries did it really nice there. And hopefully this will be what we see with him being the leader of the Democrats in the House going forward, because what is he breaking down and what is he trying to highlight for people? Before House Republicans have even taken over the majority in the House, which is happening in January, um, in January, they are tearing each other apart. Senate Republicans and House Republicans are going after each other. Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Greene are going after each other. Uh, George Santos hasn't even uh, been sworn in and he's being exposed for having his entire past that he campaigned and ran on a lie. All of these things he said he did, he didn't didn't go to this school, didn't have this job, and it was all lies. And it's just falling apart before it's even begun, before the newfound power that Republicans were going to have, specifically in the House, has even become present. And so I love that Hakeem Jeffries is almost poking fun at that so that more people are aware of it and go, gosh, they are a mess. And then he follows it up with, you know, the circus has come to town, which that's a great way to describe the current Republican Party. And meanwhile, the Democratic Party is getting things done for the American people. Now, I say again, lots of critiques of the Democratic Party. They could do a lot of things better, but the difference is clear. And the Democratic Party is fighting for things that would benefit the average working person so much more than the Republican Party is. The Republican Party is just mainly concerned in the House, at least, with investigations into Hunter Biden and Dr. Fauci and Joe Biden <laughs> and all these different people. Uh, while the Democratic Party is actually working on some good solutions. And he makes that clear there. Love it. Great stuff from Hakeem Jeffries. Thank you all so much for watching and listening to today's show. We'll see you tomorrow.